Well, the first time I met him, he was grieving terribly. His wife, Gita, had died only about eight weeks previously. And he had a story he wanted to tell somebody. It was coming out pretty ad hoc and all over the place. But more importantly, he kept wanting to tell me how much he loved this woman who had just died, but also how he wanted to be with her. And that's how my first meeting went with him, saying bits about their past and saying, I need to be with Gita. It's proved throughout the book when you read it. He knew from the second he met her that he would do anything to be mm-hmm. with her. So I suppose that makes sense that, that that was what he was saying to you. Yes. For 60 years they were together. And, and I don't mind giving away the end of this to spoiler alert. It has a happy ending. Um, but absolutely, you can't spend 60 years with this woman who you met when she was dressed in rags and her hair was shaven and she wouldn't have bathed for ages. And you've previously been a man about town, a playboy, and you fall in love in that second that your eyes meet? Of course you want to be with her in the end as well. I actually got that. I understood it. I just had to keep him alive if I could, for as long as I could, for him to get to know me well enough to then tell me the real story behind the story. And had he ever actually told the story in such detail before, how many people knew who he was? Look, all the the friends, um, particularly in the Jewish community in Melbourne, knew who he was. Many of them uh, who I met subsequently with him were survivors who he, in fact, had tattooed. And, uh, And in fact, one of those survivors, I saw her only about two weeks ago, a couple of days before I came to Europe. She's 94 and still alive. Now, they all knew. And, and to them, they were Lily and Gita. But he did not want the world to know. He did not want anyone outside of that community to know. He carried with him, of course, the, the survivor guilt of having been a privileged prisoner in the worst concentration hellhole on earth and uh, would never, ever run the risk of somebody pointing the finger at him and saying, you were a collaborator. Well, Gita was alive. He would never do anything that could in any way have some kind of uh, comeback on her. But once she had died, he would say to me, you bring on anybody who wants to accuse me of that. I know I wasn't. I know I did a job, just like everybody else. But while Gita was alive, he wasn't going to make it public. You say that he, he didn't want people to see him as a collaborator, but he, he absolutely was not that, because although he performed this incredible role, which we'll, we'll come to now in a second, mm. he went out of his way, didn't he, to, to perform it with yes. sort of a, a care and sensitivity because he, he didn't want to be seen as sort of, as he called it, defiling others, did he? And so he had that sort of, he added that humanity Absolutely. into a place that, you know, you could not imagine there being any sort of humanity, really. Absolutely. And this was really reinforced to me only a few days ago when I was in Auschwitz and Birkenau with part of the March of the Living event that takes place there. And I met uh, some Americans and one in particular, he in fact was a rabbi uh, from Florida, I think, and he had two or three people in his um, synagogue who were survivors who were tattooed. He did not know me and he did not know that I was going to be there. And when we met, he said, you know, they told me about the man who tattooed them and how he kept apologising and saying he was sorry and he's sorry he was hurting them. 
and um, and how much care he actually took. And I found that out from a stranger only about three or four days ago. I should say now, actually, there's a beautiful video, a short clip um, of you actually speaking to him. And, and he's there with a short sleeve yes. T-shirt on. You can see the tattoo on his arm. And he says something mm-hmm. so beautiful, doesn't he? Ah, uh, yes, about Gita. How she tattooed her love on his heart for all time. And that's the remarkable thing about this, because with with his role as the tattooist, you you know, that in itself is an incredible story. And I already wanted to know more yeah. about him because of that role and know who this person was and, and how he sort of coped and dealt with that and, and sort of carried that mm-hmm. weight with him, which is an enormous weight to have to bear, as you just said. Oh, but yes. to, to have a love story in, in that sort of hell, essentially, isn't it, is just even more remarkable. Well, of course it is. It, and that's why I think the story has, seems to be being embraced in, in all the countries it's been released so far, because it does have that dual narrative of this man who marked, he called it numbering, by the way, not tattooing, who made the most iconic symbols on the arms of people of, of the Holocaust but then the thread running through of this romance, of this love that, that survived and, and lasted for 60 years. Very, very privileged to be able to tell the story of this amazing couple. So tell me about him then. Tell me about his character because in, in the book it comes through that he has this remarkable resilience and this determination to not just to survive but to sort of build and and um, create this love with Gita that then would last for all of those years. So so tell me tell me about mm-hmm. him, the person that you knew. I ended up seeing glimpses of the Lully pre going into camp, that cheeky, charismatic. Um, person who had been a playboy prior to, to going into Birkenau. Uh, he'd been a man about town, and while he fell in love and that remained, I would go to social functions with him, and it would be full of members of the Jewish community, many of them survivors. Every woman in the room would gravitate towards him. As soon as he walked in the room, lully, lully, they'd come up to him for kisses and cuddles. And then the men would stand by and say, OK, ladies, you've had him enough, and pushed them away because the men wanted to be with him. Um, the cheeky bugger would introduce me as his girlfriend um, <laughs> and tell me to go off with the ladies. I mean, he was just an incredibly charming, charming man. And and the, the first time I said to him, no, you must stop introducing me as your girlfriend, Lali. Come on, you know I'm a married woman. <laughs> And there was about 20 people around us. And he looked at me and he goes, "Okay then, people, this is my, not my girlfriend. She is my mistress, okay? (laughs) He would get another smack over the head from me and off he'd trot. But um, once he got over that stabbing, stabbing grief of losing Gita and then came to the realisation that if he stayed alive, then he could get his story told. Then some of the old Lully came back, that that charming, yes, bit of a dad guy. And it was that sort of character as well that it definitely served him well in the camp, didn't it? Because he had yes. some very yeah. difficult moments himself, but it's the, the, the people around him sort of rallied around him because they saw him as sort of this strength and it felt like he was sort of a link still yeah. to that previous life they had in the outside world because he retained his self, didn't he, in some respects? I don't know how he managed he it. But... I don't either, and, and he doesn't either. It's just that you know, it was a matter of, you know, I won't let it break me. 
And um, when I think about how that time played out, and, and we can put a, a phrase to it that uh, wouldn't have been known back there, but in reality, everybody he met and he helped, he was in a way paying it forward. You help, I'll help you, and you never know when you may be able to help me. And there are a couple of instances in the book where you know he was saved by other people. Um, so yes, you do what you can when you can. Uh, and you never know when somebody else may step up for you. And it's a beautiful thing to read because, as I said before, I suppose other accounts that, that we've had, I mean, I'm thinking of Prima Levy, I remember reading The Drowned and the Saved and how yes. it, it was sort of more about the dehumanising. But this story puts the humanity in those camps, doesn't it? And that's what he said to me. He never, ever lost his faith in humanity. His faith and his religion were sorely tested. But he saw enough of those little incidences of just one individual doing something to help another uh, so that he never lost that, that faith in humanity. He knew that it would rise up eventually. And, and from that very entire first time when he got typhoid and the men in the block chose to, to save him and he had to ask them afterwards what happened and one of them were piped up to save one, is to save mankind. And how, how could they? I mean, I'm getting chills just remembering him saying it to me now, that this men, or this block of starving men, many of whom I'm sure never survived, they risked it all to save the one. And that one was Lully. It's oh, incredible. And and then, of course, he went on to, to risk his own life for Gita, this this woman mm-hmm. who he he didn't know her. You know, even in the early days when he when he was first sort of getting to know her, it, it says in the book, which I'm sure comes directly from his words that, that you have transcribed in there. But he says, I really didn't know who she was, but I just felt this compulsion. And, and he had to save her life as well. And, and at great risk to himself. Yes. Oh, Absolutely. But to him, there were risks worth taking. Now, while he always had that faith, we will leave here, we will survive, Gita didn't have that. She saw no way out for them other than through the chimneys like everybody else. And so he also had to battle that too, trying to keep... He couldn't keep her positive. She wasn't. But he had enough faith in his love for her that would carry the two of them through to the end. And it did, and, and what a remarkable story since then as well. I wonder, why do you think, I mean, I, I'm assuming it was because of the loss of Gita that sort of prompted him to want to tell you this story, but what mm-hmm. do you think Absolutely. he most hoped to come from his telling this story? Well, he initially would say to me, you have to tell it so it never happens again. Now, sadly, we know that, that that's not the case and uh, continues to this day. But it was also, more than anything, I think, well, I know, I want to tell the world about Gita. I need everybody to know how much I love this woman. And it wasn't about him in some ways. He wanted the world to know about Gita. And, and to me that was incredible that somebody could love somebody with that degree of depth for decades and say at the end, now I want to share her with the world. It's such a beautiful thing. And I wonder on that note then how, um, how it's affected you telling his story. Initially, it, uh, it had a heavy impact on me. You can't listen to somebody unburdening the terror, the tragedy, the trauma that he not only experienced but witnessed firsthand and not have that burden as it lifted from him settle somewhere else. And that was on me. 
I didn't appreciate it initially, though I should have, given where I was working at the time. But it was my family that would say to me, Mum, we don't like the way you're coming home from Fimpimbing with Lully. Why won't you talk to us about him? Because I'd got to know him, and, and they all loved him. And I realised, OK, yeah, I'm starting to leave him and feel uncomfortable. And I spoke to a colleague at a hospital where I worked and said to her how I was feeling. And she just smacked me around the head and she said, oh, come on, Heather, it's transference. You should recognise that. And she was right. Um, in the mental health profession, that when people do hear these stories, it can transfer onto the listener. I then had to just find ways and strategies to, to deal with it so that I did not carry his guilt, his story. It, it was not my grief and guilt to, to, to bear. And uh, yeah, once you smack yourself around and come to that realisation, you then go back on to that relationship and friendship, which uh, was so important to me. My, strat my strategy, by the way, was yeah, I, I would just drive around the block from him when I left him and I'd sit in my car for 10 or 15 minutes and listen to music so that when I then walked into my home, I could greet my family with the, the smile on my face that they deserved. And did it then also sort of change the way you viewed your family, that sort of idea? Because obviously he was telling he was telling a story about family as well, wasn't he? It did. And as I say, they all got to know and love him and were all there together on the day that, uh, that he was uh, buried. And yes, it did. He lived by a saying, if you woke up in the morning, it was a good day. And I think my whole family embraced that. And even though we continued and still do to this day, have good days and bad days, uh, they all tell me, but we just think of Lully whenever we're having a bad day and say, hang on, I woke up this morning. And he would say to me, you don't have to have the best day. You don't have to save the world. He said, but you should make an effort during the day to have a good day because you've got to wake up. Gosh, that's so powerful when you think of everything that he went through and everyone around him went through as well, some that obviously didn't come through at all. I, I wonder also how, in in writing this, in telling this story, and I know originally it was a screenplay, but in, in putting putting this book together, how did you manage to get that balance between the, the sort of brutality of, of what was going on with the romance? Because you, you managed to tell these really horrific scenes and tragic scenes, and yet still there's that love that comes through. How did you actually manage that? Um, look, for the record, you only read about a very small percentage of the horror that he told me. No good can come from me telling everything that, that he saw and witnessed and he shared with me. And uh, the only one of the few criticisms I have had of the book, and it's only come from one person, and that was that there wasn't enough horror in the book. And I, I looked at this person, I said, you don't understand. I am not telling the story of the Holocaust. I'm just telling a Holocaust story, the story of Lully and Gita. And that had to be the overriding arc and message in how I told it. And the thing about writing a screenplay, I had actually studied to write a screenplay. I had no idea what I was doing writing a book. But um, in writing a screenplay, it's very formulaic. And I'd studied this, OK, you have an arc here and you go emotional down here and get a high there. And so having that screenplay drafted to a pretty good standard by this stage, when it came time to write the book, I just sat down with the screenplay. There was my structure. There was my story. Now flesh it out and uh, and try and write a novel. And as I said, the, the first draft, the publishers read it and went, 
you don't know what you're doing, do you? And I went, no, haven't a clue, but come on, work with me and let's see what we end up with. And we did. And I said, look, I need to tell it simply. It's the only way I can do this. I'm not a writer. And uh, I'm just so, so grateful that my editor back in Melbourne, a big shout out to the lovely Angela Mayer, she managed to persuade the editors and the people here in London and other people, let's just leave this story the way Heather's telling it. And um, yes, I'm grateful to them. And it's a short story. It's not a long book, but it doesn't have to be. And would you ever uh, entertain the idea of then going back and it becoming a movie? Or do you think this it needs to exist in this form and this is it finished? No, it's not finished. Far from it. Uh, there, there are people in London and in Hollywood who are, um, they're all talking. We'll leave it at that for the moment. But uh, stay tuned, as they say. I had always envisioned this on a screen, big or small, Lully uh, had totally come around to the whole idea of it being a film, you know, to the point where he wanted to have a say in who should be playing him and who should play Gita. So um, um, I will be delighted on that day that uh, a completed film is, is uh, announced. I have to ask as well, I think, or, or talk really about as well, that the afterword is very special, isn't it? Tell us about that. Well, there's two there. There's one from me and there's one from their son, Gary. And it was important to me that I finished the story where I did. Initially, of course, there was talk about, well, how far down their lives do you keep going? At what point do you say enough is enough? Because they were together for 60 years and, and I wasn't going to write War and Peace. I chose to end it at their meeting after they got together after the war. But then, of course, I needed to tell the readers what happened to the characters, where we could find out about them that were in the story. I didn't want to leave you hanging not knowing what happened to Silka, what happened to Jacob. What did you find out about his family after he had died when we were carrying out the extensive research? And, uh, and I've given as much information as I can for the reader to hopefully go... Okay, there's some resolution there. Yes, it's in bullet point, but it's um, it wraps it up, I think, quite neatly. I can tell you that I have now signed a contract for the next story, and as you've read the story, I am now going to be telling you the story of Silka, the young girl that was in the camp with Gita, and what happened to her after she survived. Um, I'm pleased to say it too will have a happy ending. That's wonderful to know. So I, so that's an awful lot more research on your part to, to go down that route now. Yes, it is. Um, but the, the thing about having publishers on board is that, you know, sometimes they want to fund this research for you and have professionals do it, which is very nice for me. So, yes, uh, researchers in Slovakia who are uh, getting me all the information about because that's where Silka did end up and, and, and marry. Uh, we've uncovered a lot of research exists at Stanford University in San Francisco with regard to the Siberian gulags. And for anyone who hasn't read the story, Silke, this young girl who was only 16 when she was taken into Auschwitz-Birkenau, she was accused of being a collaborator and, and sent to a Siberian gulag. We have a, a lot of material about those gulags and uh, identifying the ones she spent time in being carried out uh, at Stanford University where this material exists. And I will weave a story together. Oh, I very much look forward to reading that one. So if, if we, we come to, to the, the back to the Tattooist of Auschwitz then, what would you what would you say is the overriding message if you were to try and sum it up from this book? Of course, 
love, if you can find it in any way, shape or form, hang on to it. That humanity, even given what is going on in the world today and has since back in 1945 when these two people left that camp for the last time, that humanity in the smallest, smallest way can give you the, the courage to go on another day. Just look around you. You'll find it. You'll see in individuals. I don't think we can rely on our governments and uh, people in power some days to keep that hope alive that our children and our grandchildren can carry on. Uh, Lully gave that to me, and hopefully he gives it to everybody who reads his story. Visit camps if you can, and just get to know as much as you can about this terrible time in history. And, and I know going to a camp like Auschwitz Birkenau is, is not possible for, for the vast majority of people. You don't have to. It's there. It's on the internet. It's in the books. It's in my book. And just remember Lully's words. If you woke up in the morning, it's a good day. And if you bring Lale to mind right now, how is it you picture him and what moment comes to mind for you? Skipping around in his um, apartment and he loved to laugh, tripping over his dogs, uh, the smile, he had the most beautiful smile and he did, he just melted a room when he walked into it. And, uh, and that's my memory of him laughing, smiling, that is wonderful. It's an extraordinary story and I urge everyone to read it. Heather, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to bring even more light to this, this remarkable human being and thank you for speaking to us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for your interest and for the chance to have this conversation. Abbey Dental, sponsors of Women Today, for all aspects of today's dental care. Highly recommended throughout the Isle of Man.